Our Father, we're thankful that You have provided the Word of God to us down through the court channels and time of history, that You have spoken to the human race even though we did not deserve it, and that You have worked out salvation completely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we approach this section of Scripture and progress of dogma, and in the ongoing expansion of revelation over the centuries, we ask that your Holy Spirit, who engineered that revelation, be also our teacher, so that we may understand more of our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen. In the New Testament, we have got to the point where one of the great refrains in the Gospels uh, that we kind of keyed off of in this uh, fifth part of the series Uh, is Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And we have spent four or five weeks uh, saying basically how men answer that question says more about the men than it does about Jesus. A skeptic will frequently say, well, the revelation isn't clear. Uh, I see this problem. I see that problem. I can't believe the scripture. Uh, I think all the liberal scholars in the world Uh, basically saying two things out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're saying that they don't know everything, but on the other hand, they're saying they definitely know that John, for example, couldn't have written the Gospel of John. Anybody else in the world, a million other Johns, could have written it, but the one that the Bible says wrote it isn't the one that wrote it. And so you see this kind of response to the authority of the New Testament, and it really boils down to nothing more than what we studied Uh, in the first part of the framework series, which was the creation and the fall. Men are fallen, and uh, we just don't like God's authority, and we're going to invent all kinds of excuses to end-run his authority. So, uh, God has been gracious, and we've said, as we've gone through this series, we've said that God has prepared history for the advent of his Son. And that's why in Galatians, Paul says, in the fullness of time... God brought forth his son. And of course, just to review again, these um, events and the doctrines that are taught in those events, tonight we're going to emphasize those doctrines that are revealed through the creation of the fall, basically the creation, um, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of nature. Because if we don't understand those, we cannot understand Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God, Jesus Christ is man, and he was not revealed until centuries upon century upon century of revelation. Uh, It took centuries for God to speak, for God to clarify the issues, so that when his son walked on this earth, we would understand who he is. You cannot study the Bible backwards. And everybody does this. We all start with the New Testament and think we're going to understand something. You're not going to understand anything starting with the New Testament because the New Testament is the last section of a continuing volume. If you want to study the Bible, you have to start in the beginning, Genesis. Then you can understand the New Testament. So, in the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son. And we've emphasized several things. We've said that the pagan world and the Jewish world were both prepared. The pagan world was prepared through the period of history from the covenant when Noah started civilization or restarted it and down through the call of Abraham. There's a gap actually between 
the flood, the covenant, and the call of Abraham. And during those, those centuries, man had the opportunity to visit all of the continents, map them, uh, go out into a new world, uh, rebuild it however way we wanted to rebuild it. Great architecture, great technical achievements. Uh, they built boats and ships. Uh, Noah's day, obviously bigger than anything that we have ever been able to build until the middle of the 19th century. So our technology in the last 200 years is just barely getting back to where it was when Noah and his sons walked off that ark. And remind you that during that time, remember we studied their technology, they had completely mapped the world including Antarctica before the ice cap was on top of the riverbeds in Antarctica. They left maps. We can look at those maps compared to radar surveillance now under the ice cap and see that somebody mapped Antarctica long before the ice, ice uh, took over. So Noah and his sons were brilliant. They were very talented. Uh, they were the architects of the ancient world. They moved blocks around in perfect uh, geometry. And we're still sitting there scratching our heads wondering how they built the pyramids. And this is the quality of person. These aren't some ape that fell out of a tree someplace and gave up bananas. These were intelligent people who had great physical power and intellectual abilities. But the Bible's argument was that by the time the call Abraham lived, which is 2000 B.C., that civilization that had been started by Noah and his sons had once again become corrupted. Romans 1 is a litany of that corruption. Uh, the fall of man, the depravity of man, worked its way out in all races and all people groups so that the very survival of the Word of God was threatened. And that's why God called out Abraham and he called Abraham to create in history a counterculture. And the rest of the Old Testament is a narration of the development and God working with that counterculture. Why? Because he wanted to preserve the light. And we have gone and studied the various events in the counterculture over the last few years and Thursday nights. And we got down to the end of the Old Testament where the counterculture didn't look too healthy where basically, once again, there had been demonstrated to the Jew, as well as now to the pagan, that people are depraved. The book of Judges, the conquest period, all that period prior to the monarchy, which is this period, Israel lacked a strong central government. They had the makings of what you and I would call a democracy, a democratic society. But our idea of democracy comes from Greece, not from the Jews. Our idea of democracy holds that basically man is unfallen. And if we just let 51% of the people vote, then that's fine. Whatever they decide is right. Well, that's not the argument of the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. It says people did what was right in their own eyes. So those two books, though they're maligned and often not read and not studied by Christians, they, that, those books are a fundamental argument against the whole axiom of democracy. And that's why when the Puritans came to this country, they devised not a democracy, but a republic. This is not a democracy. And it's the 
funniest thing today. You can listen to the television, listen to the radio, and you have all these people wandering around. Now, I'm not debating the, the rightness or the wrongness of the impeachment of the president right now. All I'm saying is that when you hear people say that they are against the impeachment because it's going to take their right to vote away, and that's wrong, somebody somewhere in the sixth and seventh grade dropped out because usually by the sixth and seventh grade you have the opportunity to read some serious literature and one of the serious literatures to read as an American citizen called the Constitution and the Constitution very specifically holds that whether you like it or not whether I like it or not whether I voted for him I didn't vote for him there is a thing called impeachment proceedings and the reason that those proceedings were written into the Constitution is because the authors of the Constitution, by and large, if they weren't personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as individual Christians, they were influenced intellectually by these doctrines, the doctrine of the depravity of man. And they balanced power in all of these things. That's why you have the legislative, the judicial, and the executive. Because not any one of those branches should dominate the other. They're all in balance. And that was directly due to a Christian premise. It had nothing to do with the Greeks and democracy. It had everything to do with the word of God and the depravity of man's heart. And the Puritans had a great influence on this country's political thinking. All this to say that the human race does not have a very good record. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ came and he was rejected, that response itself is an indictment of the human race. A, a major indictment. This is why in the Gospel of John, right after that verse that everybody knows, which is that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And whosoever believeth in him is not condemned, but then it adds, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Very clear. Very clear. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. A child can read that text and understand it quite clearly. The picture is that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, and they scatter. They rebel. They reject. They go away. I remember when we lived in West Texas. We used to have walk into the kitchen at night and turn the light on. You have these little roaches. They were big roaches, about an inch long. And uh, they'd slither around, and if you stepped on one, that was nice. But um, you'd, you'd open the kitchen drawers, and then, there comes some little roach out somewhere. Uh, these things are awful-looking creatures. I don't know if God loves them or not, but, but they really are just um, very disconcerting at night, particularly uh, when you think you have a nice, clean house, and uh, these things start running around. Well, they always flee the light. Anytime there's light on, the cockroaches take off. And that's a picture of, the, of us humans. In God's eyes, we're the cockroaches. The Lord Jesus Christ came as the great light, and we, the cockroaches, uh, run when the light turns on. And that's what John is saying in John chapter 3. So tonight, we're going to start in with chapter 2, because chapter 2 of the notes deals with the first of four events in the coming of the light of the Son of God. We're going to divide the life of Christ into four parts. And each of these four parts will be a study of how the cockroaches flee the light and come up with all kinds of excuses why they can't believe in Jesus Christ. The first is going to be the birth of Christ. 
then we're going to go to the life of Christ, then the death of Christ, and then the resurrection of Christ. And tonight, we're going to start with the, the coming of Christ and his birth. Then, next week, we're going to continue that a little bit, and then we're going to move and study the reaction of ancient and modern paganism and Judaism to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And the third thing we're going to do, and I outline these three things because we're going to repeat the cycle of three. We're going to take the cycle of three on the birth of Christ, the cycle of three on the life of Christ, the same cycle of three on the death of Christ, and the same cycle of three on the resurrection of Christ. In each case, we'll study the event as it is pictured in Scripture. Then we're going to study the response of men to that event because we want to study, because Christ said, really, who do you say I am? He was pressing men for a decision as to who he is. Then we're going to study the proper response to the Lord Jesus and how the church down through the centuries has distilled the truths associated with each of these four events and built a doctrinal framework within which we are supposed to walk and think God's thoughts after him. These doctrines that flow out of the life of Christ are very, very critical because they shape the gospel, they shape sanctification, they are the capstone of everything we've learned in the Old Testament. Because as we do approach the life of Christ, I hope it will become increasingly obvious, starting tonight, that there's not much new in the New Testament. The New Testament puts together all the pieces of the Old Testament. But the pieces aren't really new. There's only a few things that are really new, new in the New Testament. We'll see, I'll demonstrate that tonight. If on page 20 of the notes, I want to direct your attention first to um, two verses. Let's turn back to Isaiah 41 for a moment because we're going to, we want to show a principle here about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. All the great creeds, hold to the virgin birth of Christ until you get down into the 20th century. And then everybody's excusing themselves and tripping all over themselves and apologizing for the virgin birth of Christ. Probably because they're apologizing in, over any kind of virginity. Isaiah 41, verse 22. This is the principle... And here's the point we're trying to make here. The virgin birth is criticized today by modern theologians and liberal clergymen to be incidental, incidental to the Christian gospel. Okay? I mean, if you don't believe me, just go listen to some of them. The idea is that the virgin birth is a peripheral thing just like the days in Genesis, you don't have to really believe that to be orthodox. And it's just excess baggage for the free-thinking, brilliant people that inhabit the 20th century. Well, what we want to show here is that the virgin birth is implicit in the Old Testament. Okay? That's where we're headed. We want to show that the virgin birth is not a peripheral. It's not an extra. It's not a thing that Matthew and Luke cooked up the last minute to make Jesus' biography interesting. The virgin birth comes out of and connects with all the truths that we've learned in the Old Testament. 
So, my point in showing this verse in Isaiah is the principle that if God says something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, it's reflecting on him. So, if he said there's got to be a virgin birth and there isn't a virgin birth, it's no longer a peripheral thing. It's an indictment of the very truthfulness of God. And so, in Isaiah 41... God challenges the pagan gods and goddesses. This is, this is, by the way, is a very offensive passage to a modern relativist. And the, and the classrooms are full of these people. Faculties are full of it. This verse, verse 22 and 23, shows and claims the exclusivity of biblical truth. It's that offensive thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. It's that offensive thing that the, uh, Abraham called out of Ur the Chaldees, a rejection of all the other people groups. What am I doing? <laughs> Don't know. Okay. Um, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Look at that phrase in verse 23. Declare the things that are going to come afterward. That's prophecy. Why? That we may know... You are God. It's a challenge to all the other deities, all the other religions. If you are true, you prophesy. Let's see if you can prophesy the future, that we may know your gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. And then the indictment comes, you're of no account, and your work amounts to nothing, and he who chooses you is an abomination. In other words, no one can prophesy like the God of the Scriptures. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ enunciates the same principle if you turn to John chapter 14. Of course, this principle is throughout Scripture. I'm just picking two verses to start tonight with just to show that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this principle of prophetic validation is, is, is present. John chapter 14, verse 29. And now I have told you before it comes to pass. Now notice the purpose clause in verse 29. Jesus is speaking and he leads up to a purpose clause. And he says that when it does come to pass, what is going to be the result? That you can believe. Now what, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that if it doesn't come to pass, you're not going to believe. Belief is contingent upon the evidence that we have that our God is a trustworthy and truthfully speaking God. That's why it is so important to adhere to an inerrant Bible. If the Bible is inerrant, or is errant, then God is either mumbling or he's lying to us. Or the Bible simply isn't what it claims to be, the Word of God. In all three cases, what does that do to my faith in, in the God of the Scriptures? It tubes it. So, these are not peripheral things. The virgin birth is not an extra item. It's not an option, theologically. 
On page 21 now, I'm going to go through the two Old Testament prophecies of the virgin birth. One of them is a plus, and the other one says that you can't do without it. So one is a positive and one is a negative. The positive one, if you turn over to Isaiah, chapter 7, Here is the location of the quote that Matthew and Luke use in the Christmas story. This is where Matthew and Luke got this from. Here's the context. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Let's start to pick up the context of this prophecy. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is a king of the southern kingdom. Isaiah is the prophet. Remember, what did we say? In past years, a prophet, the, the prophets did in the Old Testament. They were like the prosecuting attorneys. They were the guys who walked into, into the kings and they said, you either are or not adhering to the Mosaic Covenant. They were the administrators of the treaty to the nation. Or, in more contemporary American political uh, language, the prophets would be the prosecutors acting on the basis of the Constitution. They would be administering constitutional law to the nation. And Isaiah administered constitutional law, of course, in a different way than they could be done today, in that Israel was a special nation. Israel was an elect nation. Israel had a line of prophets who personally spoke to God, and God spoke to them. So it was not just enforcing the the words of the Mosaic Covenant, It was the spirit of the Mosaic Covenant operating in providential history for the nation Israel. So in Isaiah 7.10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, Ahaz has got himself in a mess. The Arameans, today the Syrians, had come down and were going to invade. And they were a military threat. Just like even today, the Syrians have 29 Scud missile launches all aimed at Israel. That's the money. They even you know where they got them from. They got them from American foreign aid where we paid them to stay out of the war. So they turned around and bought 29 Scud missile launches so now they can shoot at Israel with them. That's how our dollars wind up. Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God and make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Can you imagine if somebody came to you and said that? I mean, here you are depressed in the middle of a mess and God wants to encourage you. And a prophet walks up to you and, and tells you, hey, you name it, babes, and God will do it. You imagine sitting here, gee, I wonder what I could think of. And instead of doing that, listen to this pious answer. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, isn't that cute? Like he's, gonna, he's got everything under control and he really doesn't need this. And Ahaz, but he said, listen now. So the prophet at this point gets irritated. And there's emotion in this next verse because he spots the hypocrisy of that phony religious answer. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of man? Now you're going to try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Now, this is interesting. 
the sign that is now being given wasn't asked for. It is a sign of God's grace to the nation. God didn't have to give them this sign. He says, but God is going to give you this sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The idea is that two things are in this prophecy. Now, this is not an easy prophecy to, to work with and remember that it fits the context as well as the far future, the near future and the far future. But let me try to work through this quickly so we get the point to apply to the New Testament. This is not a class in Isaiah or Old Testament exegesis here. In verse 14, it's the force of the expression, Behold a virgin. We would really understand that to look off and see the virgin. The word behold, when it's used with a participle, in the Old Testament prophetic literature is a reference to a future event, not a present one. Behold. It's an idea of look at this. Now, the interesting thing is the virgin. Who is the virgin? The virgin is introduced here as though everybody knows who the virgin is. There's no explanation for this virgin. So, the very fact that the word virgin occurs in this passage with implied familiarity on the part of the hearers tells us that this is not something new. Now, the only other place that we can come up with as a source for an understanding what the virgin means is where? Back earlier in the Old Testament. All the way back. Keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. And you'll eventually get to Genesis. Now, think about Genesis. And think about the creation and the fall. And think about what Eve's name was. Eve's name was Eva, life. That's what that word means, life. Adam called his, his wife Isha. Her real name is Isha. That's woman, Isha, I-S-H-A, Isha. Ish, man, I-S-H, Isha, woman, I-S-H-A, feminine ending. So her name was Isha, but she was now given the word Chava, or life. Now, why did Adam name his Isha, did he change her name from Isha to Chava, or Eve? He, he must have had something on his mind that made him name his wife that way. Well, hold the place and let's go back to Genesis 3 when Isha became Eva. Verse 15. Theologians have referred to verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis as the proto-evangelium. That means the first gospel. Proto-evangelium. Verse 15 is a prophecy. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Now, it's interesting that verse 15 is not addressed to Adam or to Eve. Verse 15 is addressed to Satan. It's an announcement of his doom. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. Now, the Old Testament is sort of sneaky in the sense that it plops out these expressions and then sort of leaves you and goes right on. And then it's not until centuries later when somebody says, gee, you know, if we went back there and looked a little more carefully at what God said, maybe we missed some things. Maybe we should have paid a little more attention back there. Well, this is one of those passages that on the surface, all it looks like, you know, the children of Eve are going to have a battle with the children of Satan. But there's a strange expression that occurs here. And if you look at it in the concordance, it's a rare expression. And whenever you see a rare expression in Scripture, take notice. Something's a little out of usual context here. It says, between your seed and her seed. Now, in the Greek text of the Old Testament, seed, to give you the flavor of this, is translated sperma. Now, does this sort of set off some thinking? Isn't there something unusual here? Since when does a woman have sperm? Since when does a woman have this word seed? Look it out. See how many times in the Bible the word seed, this word, is used of a woman. And you'll find, I, I'm not clear, there may be one or two places. So one of them, I think, is in the genealogy, but even that one is suspect. So uh, there may be some places, um, but you're not going to find it as a, as a routine use of the word. So the very idea that this word is used and attached to a woman signals something. And the other fact that is in the local context is in chapter 4, verse 1. Eve has the first baby in history. And when she gives birth to her first son, Cain, she said, I have gotten a man-child, and it's in the Hebrew, with Lord, with Yahweh, or Yahweh. It's not altogether clear whether she's saying, I've gotten a man, even Yahweh. Or she's saying, I got a man with the help of Yahweh. And translate is kind of like the fudge here because nobody really wants to say that Eve's perception of this truth was so clear that in verse 1 she was just she's talking about the incarnation. But in any case, she had a sense that something's going on with my role as a woman associated with the birth process. Now, she was wrong because this wasn't the virgin birth. But something is on her mind and it has something to do with her name, and it has something to do with that prophecy. Now, we know, if we turn back to Isaiah now, we know that all through the ancient world, there was the tale of the virgin. This was a common pagan theme. In fact, it was so common that critics have criticized the scriptures as saying that this virgin idea of Jesus Christ came from the pagan idea. Well... You know how we handle that. We turn it on its head. No. The pagan idea came from what? A distortion of the truths that were dispensed throughout all the people groups of the earth by whom? Noah and the Noahic Bible. Genesis 1 through 10. So in that Noahic Bible and the accompanying oral tradition, there was an emphasis on a virgin. Now, coming back to Isaiah, when, Isaiah, when God speaks to Isaiah and he says in verse 14, Behold, the virgin 
he is referencing that background. It's not something that he just dreamed up to some lady, pregnant lady, walking down the street and says, oh yeah, the lady there would be pregnant. That's not what it's talking about. Behold is a serious word of prophetic intent. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And look at the word, and we'll parse that word, because that word is a transliteration. Now, it's sort of interesting, and I can understand it, when... When you're a translator and you don't, you don't want to translate something because you're going to get in trouble, what are you going to do? You transliterate it. Now, that's why um, you have these words like baptism. Baptism is in the translation. What they did, Greek word says baptizo. So they had a big fight between the Presbyterians and the Baptist type thinking on down through church history and no translator wanted to get on one side or the other, so they chickened out. And they just transliterated it. Baptized. So now it's up to you. They left it up to the reader. Well, this is one... Uh, where we have a, a case. You look at this virgin, will be with child, bear a son, and the mother will call the, virgin, will call the son that she bears Emmanuel. Well, let's look at a few details. First of all, when you see that on a word, understand that that's short for a Hebrew word, El Ohim. For God. Like the word Nathaniel. God. Nathan, not pan, is given. Nathaniel means God, Elohim, has given. Now here, Emmanuel, the E-L is God's name. M, Iman, means with. This is the preposition and the preposition Hebrew has an ending, new. The new ending, you know, if you conjugate the, the noun, you decline the noun, and it has all these kind of endings on it. Uh, it has a feminine ending, it has a neuter ending, it has a masculine ending, it has a nominative case, it has a genitive case, it has an instrumental case. Well, this is the plural, first person ending on the preposition, new. And so that's translated with... Us, Elohim. So when you have a name like this given in a prophetic discourse, don't read it like you're reading somebody's popular name, like this is Dick and Jane. That's not the way this has to be understood. When a prophet gives a name, like uh, another example, in Isaiah 9, we all know this one because we hear it every Christmas with Handel's Messiah, Remember that phrase in Honnold's Messiah where it says, He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father? That's called a titulary, a title list. And all those words depict what? The essence of Jesus Christ. So when you see the word Emmanuel here, that's not going to be his personal name, you know, Jack and John. That's not what he means. This means the essence of that child. So behold, the virgin that you've heard about will conceive, she will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. She will recognize, unlike Eve, this virgin will recognize that her child is God with us. He is in the incarnation. Then in verse 15 and 16, he's saying that obviously this is a child, is going to be raised, going to have childhood, 
And during that childhood, if you want to say some six to ten years, that he's going to, by the time that he is old, in the time that it takes this child to grow, six to ten years, get out of his childhood, by that time, then your problem Ahaz will be solved. So two things are said here. Now let's, let's, let's do a circle and come back and see if we can excerpt what the relevancy of this prophecy is to Ahaz. Because we've got to answer that. Alright, there's two parts to the prophecy. There's the age in which he's saying in a short time you will have military relief. And that duration will be the time it takes this child to grow. Well, this is kind of an indirect way. Why didn't he just say, you know, in a short time? Why does he have to drag the virgin birth into it and the Emmanuel into it and all the rest of it into it when, for heaven's sakes, this is centuries before Christ? What, well, what how's this going to help Ahaz? All right, let's ask ourselves. Of what lineage is Ahaz? He is of the house of David. Remember the verse up here where he's saying, verse 13, O house of David? Now, the, the Messiah is going to come out of the house of David, but the point is that if the virgin is going to conceive and bring forth a son, and the son will be of the house of David, what does that guarantee that the house of David can enjoy down through history? It will never be destroyed. So, the first element of the prophecy assures the house of David that the Davidic dynasty the Davidic dynasty is secure forever. Now, those of us who have studied uh, in the Old Testament on Thursday nights, what covenant? Let's think back. What's the covenant that guarantees eternal security to the Davidic dynasty? Davidic covenant. So, all this is is a repetition of the Davidic covenant. That's all it is. Nothing new here. All right. Now, that's Isaiah 7. Now, if you turn to the notes, we have to contend with a word that is used for virgin. Because now, in, in recent centuries, that's become an issue. Can't leave it alone. I have to keep making an issue. In the Hebrew, the word looks, is, it sounds like this. Alma. In the Greek, Parthenos. In the Hebrew text, Alma is the word used for the virgin. If you look on the notes on page 21, halfway down, you'll see my comment, or I'm trying to summarize a lot of material for you, so I'm trying to pack it in these two paragraphs. You will often hear skeptics, even evangelical skeptics, say that the meaning of the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14 isn't virgin, but simply young woman. It was the Christian church, they say, that added the specialized meaning of virgin to the Hebrew word Alma. In other words, we Christians wanted to see the prophecy fulfilled in the Savior, so the Christian church changed the meaning of the original Hebrew word from young woman to virgin. In other words, back in Isaiah's day, Isaiah wasn't talking about a virgin birth. He was just talking about a pregnant woman giving birth to a child and Therefore, Ahaz would receive relief. In other words, their exegesis of the passage was that there wasn't two things in that, in that word of God to Ahaz. There was only one thing, namely the age issue. 
the virgin issue and the security of the Davidic dynasty wasn't in the, wasn't in the context. That's what they say. Well, what do we say? The traditional view, they claim, is that Alma means young woman. However, now here's our answer. However, the fact that the translators of the Septuagint, notice the dates, 250 to 150 years before Jesus Christ, deliberately translated the Hebrew word Alma by the Greek word for virgin, Parthenos. It indicates that the miraculous virgin birth interpretation of Isaiah 7 is the traditional Jewish one. Why would they have translated by Parthenos? They're not Christians. There weren't any Christians in 250 B.C., were there? These were Jews in Alexandria translating the Hebrew into the Greek so that they have a, a contemporary translation. The Septuagint, it's called Septuagint 70 because Theory says that there were 70 translators and they worked hard on this thing and they cranked out this uh, new translation. It was sort of like the, the Living Bible or something. They wanted a, a contemporary translation because a lot of the Jews had forgotten their Hebrew and so they wanted something to read. So they translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. The Septuagint is used by us, by Christian scholars, so that we understand how the Jews thought in 250 B.C., how they are translating the Hebrew tells us how they interpreted it. So that's the important point. Next, when Matthew cites seven, Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23, he was not inventing the interpretation. He was merely imply, applying the traditional Jewish interpretation to Jesus. Later, when Christianity flourished, now here's another thing that happened. The Jews today deny the virgin birth interpretation of Isaiah 7. So, here's how it got started. And I'm using a Jewish scholar here. He happens to be a Christian Jewish scholar. Jewish authorities, in their own interest, attacked this interpretation of Isaiah 7.14. One of these Jewish authorities, Rashi, by the way, notice his date on his life. He's in the Middle Ages. In other words, 900 years after the gospel, 900 years of gospel teaching had already gone on and nobody challenged the Isaiah interpretation. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that all of a sudden somebody says, wait a minute, I don't believe this virgin business. Fruchtenbaum, Arnold Fruchtenbaum knows, however, uh, notes, however, it is true that Rashi interpreted Isaiah 7.14 to mean a young woman. He attached the word young woman as the meaning of Alma. Perhaps for the same reason he made Isaiah 53 refer to Israel, not the Messiah. We've previously discussed that on Thursday nights. But this is not enough to prove that Rashi always made Alma to mean a young woman. This Hebrew word also is found in the Song of Songs 1.3 and 6.8. And in these passages, because of the context, Rashi admitted that many Jewish scholars, of, uh, um, the, the Hebrew word is also found in Song of Solomon. In these passages, Rashi admitted that many Jewish scholars of his day made Isaiah 7.14 to refer to, refer to a virgin. Uh, I've left out part of a sentence there. Um, what I'm, oh, there's a missing part in the sentence. In these passages, that is Song of Songs 1.3 and 6.8, the context clearly shows that Alma means unmarried women. 
and the virginity of the unmarried woman is assumed. But you can't have, they're not married women in, in Song of Songs 1, 3, and 6a. So why is Alma being used of them? Then, then, and then Rashi admitted in his discussion of 714 that many scholars of his day had made. So Rashi was admitting that he was coming up with something unusual. It can be easily seen that Rashi was trying to counteract Christian polemics with his interpretation of Isaiah 714 rather than being honest with the text itself. Okay, now, second passage in the Old Testament that implies the virgin birth. Turn to Jeremiah 22. This is the passage we studied last year. This requires a little more understanding of the Old Testament than even Isaiah 7. But it answers a problem in the New Testament. Jeremiah 22.30 Here's the deal. At the end of the kingdom, going back to the period just prior to the exile, when God was disciplining as king of the nation, he was disciplining the nation Israel, he was shortly to send them into exile. At the point he was sending them into exile, he brought discipline upon not only the nation, but on the house of David itself. And the last of the line of David is mentioned here. So we have the line of David. Here's David in time. Here's Solomon. Here are the kings in the southern kingdom, SK. On down to these guys in this passage of Jeremiah 22. David dates about 1000 BC. Jeremiah 22 is just prior to the invasions, we'll say in the safe 650 BC. So we have 350 years of monarchy. Now, in, in Jeremiah 22.30, it's talking about one of the last kings, Coniah. And it says, O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is a prophet saying, Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. In Judah. At this point, the prophecy says, according to Jeremiah, God's discipline on the house of David terminates this line. So the line of David through Solomon is exed, and they will never reign again on the house of Israel. That line has had it right here. That's God's discipline. Now, at that sense, that answers a problem. Turn now to the Christmas story in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Remember, who is Matthew? Matthew is a tax collector. Matthew is sensitive to government records. Matthew has political understanding that the other apostles probably didn't have. Matthew was a bureaucrat by profession. He worked in the government circles. He worked as a Jew in a Roman situation. So he knew the Roman government processes and he knew the Jewish processes. 
He was very intimate to those processes. Now, in Matthew 1, he starts his gospel with a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts it, verse 1, 1, with the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, so on. He starts back with the first Jew. Remember the call of Abraham? And he, he comes forward now in time. Verse 6, to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon, so forth and so forth. And he goes down, and by the way, this is not a classic Jewish genealogy. You know why? Women are mentioned in it. Notice, and which women are mentioned? Look carefully. Verse 3, Tamar. Then you look down, uh, and you have Ruth. Then you have, was born son by her, been the wife of Uriah. Remember the adultery. All of these women are Gentiles or they are hooked up with some sexual thing. And it's unusual why in the lineage of a holy Messiah would Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bring this in. First of all, breaking a basic Jewish tradition and then of all cases doing this. He's got something in mind here. But obviously what he's got in mind, part of what he's got in mind is that this genealogy is not some holier-than-thou group of people. Then he comes down at the end, verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, that is by Mary, was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. Then he starts in verse 18, immediately talking about how the birth came to be. And how, in the first verse of that next section, what is he talking about? The virgin birth. And he goes on, verse 19, verse 20, and then in verse 23, he refers to the Isianic prophecy of 714. So it's quite clear that Matthew, early in his gospel, is introducing us to this prophecy. But just prior to doing that, he has talked endlessly about this genealogy that has sin in it. Furthermore, we know that he is listing the verse 11 of the genealogy, the very king that Jeremiah says cuts the line off. So, what do we say about this then? What Matthew has evidently done and the critics have missed this by a mile in history. What Matthew has done, being sensitive as he was to the government, to bureaucracy, and to therefore what? What had he seen in his life of government bureaucracy? Corruption, 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 corruption. And what then, when he sets up the genealogy of Jesus Christ, is he saying? This messianic Jewish line of which Israel is proud, this house of David, it's got corruption. It's got corruption. It's got corruption. It's got a king in it that's been damned. A king who has been judged as unworthy to have any lineage. And then after he gets done this genealogy, what is his first thought? The virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now let's connect those two. Verses 1 to 17 can't be disconnected from verses 18 and what follows. 
This man, Matthew, argues in a logical, straightforward fashion. Appears that his logic is that it's precisely because of the corruption and discipline in the Davidic line, which is the line of who? Joseph or Mary? Joseph. That Joseph is in the line, far from establishing the legitimacy of Jesus, disestablishes it on any other basis than the virgin birth. Here's why. Because Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, is locked in to the corrupt Davidic line. He can't be the father of Jesus. He suffers under the damnation of the Kaniah discipline of Jeremiah 22.30, and he's in a line of corruption. And how out of a line of corruption and discipline is the Messiah ever going to come? So, it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek genealogy that sets us up for his initial thrust. Now he says, now, here's the birth of Jesus. And I want to show you that the birth of Jesus Christ completely enruns the problem of a corrupt lineage. And how does it do it? It does it through a virgin birth. So while he quotes Isaiah 7.14 in a positive sense, He's building on the idea of Jeremiah 22 in a negative sense. And so, therefore, the genealogy of Joseph that appears in Matthew's Gospel is a setup for the virgin birth and shows, in effect, that Joseph would would disqualify Jesus from Messiahship if he really were the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what we want to do is turn to the other genealogy in the New Testament, Luke chapter 3. And usually what happens is some uh, professor gets hold of this in some Bible class at college. And because he has a PhD, he thinks he can bully all the students in the classroom while he lives off the tuition of their hard-working parents. So in Luke chapter 3, we have the genealogy that begins in verse 23. Luke 3, 23. Now notice how he starts his genealogy. Luke is a medical doctor. Luke is, shows his medical interest because in Luke's Gospel is the only place you will find the inner thoughts of Mary when she's pregnant. And the church history says that Luke went back before Mary died and he asked her. And that's where, on the human level, led by the Holy Spirit, of course, the medical doctor, Luke, he was interested in the pregnancy. I mean, from a doctor's point of view, he was interested in the pregnancy. So he interviewed her. And you just see for yourself, compare Luke's gospel, the Christmas story, with all the other gospel, right? And you tell me, which one tells you the inner hearts and thoughts of this pregnant woman and the delivery and what she thinks of her child. It's obviously a doctor's heart. He's talked to her and he shows you his, his perspective that he's coming at it. In verse 23, he starts his genealogy with an interesting grammar, grammatical construction. He says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. So see, he's adhering to the virgin birth also. And he's doing it in many ways. 
but he, he shows supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and the critic in the classroom, college classroom, say, ha, oh, see, students? Now look, you see, we've got two genealogies in the New Testament, and they conflict. So your Bible isn't inerrant. It's got errors in it. It's written by people. People make mistakes. So I'm sorry about your faith as a young Christian, but it just, you just have to get mature and give up what your parents have taught you because now you're coming of age and you can think on your own feet. And so he goes down through all this and he says, see, verse 31 talks about David and so on, and he whips by at 35 miles an hour, not noticing something about verse 31. If you look carefully at verse 31, which son of David occurs there? Is it, you see Solomon listed anywhere in verse 31? No. It's a different line. You see, this line got X'd out. You see, the Bible is, is precise to the nth decimal place. Jeremiah 22 ends this line. So if Jesus Christ is Davidic, he's got to be Davidic by some other means than through Solomon. And sure enough, Luke provides the answer. David had another son. His son, that son, was called Nathan. Nathan had a son, and so on, and so on, and it comes down to... And now we got the problem. Is this genealogy saying that this is the genealogy of Joseph? So that we have a Joseph genealogy in Matthew 1 and a Joseph genealogy in Luke 3, and they both conflict? Is that what this is saying? Well, over the years... Christians have looked at this. I mean, you know, some college professor, yet last week in class, isn't the first person to think about this. You know, really. There have been one or two other intelligent people down through church history that have looked at this problem. It's not new. And the consensus is that this is a genealogy that is actually Mary's. But if you're going to say that, you have to explain verse 23. Why is Joseph's name at the head of it and not Mary's name? Now, if you'll turn in your notes to page 22. Fruchtenbaum has an excellent explanation of this. Fruchtenbaum tells us the Jewish background of using a husband's name in his wife's genealogy. If by Jewish law you could not mention the name of a woman, remember what we said about the Matthew genealogy? That wasn't a real cool Jewish genealogy. Got four women in it. You don't do that. If by Jewish law you could not mention the name of a woman, but you wished to trace a woman's line, how would you go about doing it? The answer is that you would use the name of her husband. That raises a second question. If you were to use the husband's name, how would you know whether the genealogy is that of the husband or of the wife? In the Greek text of Luke's genealogy, every single name mentioned in the, has the Greek article O, or the. Looks like this, Omicron, and then the noun, for masculine nouns. It has that article. Every single name mentioned has the Greek article O, or the. The one exception is the name of Joseph in verse 23. So when you start observing the text, and you observe this, you observe this, you observe this, you observe this, bang, pattern broken. Verse 23, pattern broken. That sets off questions. Why is the text pattern that's 
perfect for the rest of the genealogy. Why is, this, why is it different at Joseph? That's what we're talking about. Joseph's name does not have the definite article, the, in front of it, while all the other names do. What that would mean to someone reading the original is this. When he saw the definite article missing from Joseph's name while it was present in all the other names, it would mean then that this was not really Joseph's genealogy, but rather it is Mary's genealogy. But in keeping with Jewish law, it was the husband's name that was used. We have two examples of this in the Old Testament, Ezra 2.61 and Nehemiah 7.63. So, to conclude what we're saying tonight, the virgin birth is built in by several necessities in the rationale of God. God has a perfect plan for history. He has a perfect plan for our life. He doesn't do things in a scattered, messy way. So, our first reason why the virgin birth is necessary is that it is necessary because of God's prophetic word. God predicted it. God set up a situation in Old Testament history which could not result in anything other than a virgin-born Messiah. Now, next week, we're going to deal with the legal moral necessity in verse 23, uh, in page 23 of the notes, and the spiritual necessity. So there's some more to this virgin birth thing. But I want us to appreciate that the virgin birth is not a theological option, a peripheral item. The Apostles' Creed talks about Jesus Christ who was born of a virgin. And the reason it does so is because the men who wrote that understood that Jesus Christ could not be who he claimed to be unless he was virgin born. So we'll continue that study next week when we get into it. And we're going to work, obviously, in the birth of Christ onto the heart of who he is. We will identify as specifically as the church has been able to do down through the centuries that Jesus Christ is God. He is a phrase that we're going to repeat over and over. And here it is. It's from the Council of Chalcedon. 500 years of discussion went into this sentence. Jesus Christ is undiminished deity united with true humanity without confusion, forever. Four things are stated about Christ. And every one of those four statements has been fought and opposed and attacked and argued about. Is he really undiminished deity? Or was he diminished? When he walked around the earth, did he diminish and compromise his deity? Was he really God when he walked the earth? Is he undiminished deity? Was he really true humanity? How could God come upon a man and not wreck the humanity? How could Jesus have a human spirit? How could Jesus have a human soul? How could Jesus walk around with the mind of a man and yet also be undiminished deity? He was undiminished deity. He was true humanity. But if he is both of those, then how do you deal with the creator-creature distinction, which must be existing forever and ever? That's why the church added, he is undiminished deity, he is true humanity, united, next phrase, without mixture. No confusion. No blurring of the creator-creature distinction. And how long? Forever and ever. Will there ever be a time when we will know Jesus Christ not as a human being? Never. For billions of years into eternity, he will always be a man. 
And that makes him our high priest. You see, there's a lot of exciting things that happen to us because of his humanity. See, Allah and all the other gods that supposedly exist never come to this earth and get the dirt under their fingernails. Allah can't judge us as our peer. You know, there's a principle in court, in jurisprudence, that it's a trial, we, we flippantly refer to this, trial by jury and trial by a jury of peers. Well, what does a trial by a jury of peers do? Why do we have trial by jury of peers? That gets away from the old European condition where you'd have the nobles in a courtroom attacking here some poor peasant. They don't even have a clue what this poor peasant gone through. Now, they're eating cake and they're trying to scrounge scraps off the streets. They, they can't identify with it. So how can you judge a person's behavior if you haven't walked in their path? And see, that's the power in the book of Hebrews when it says we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What does that mean? It means Jesus is our peer. And that's why those church fathers labored so many centuries to protect us and to argue for the true humanity of Jesus Christ. If he isn't true humanity, then when he judges us, we don't really have a fair trial. But you see, Jesus can be fair trial. That's why God the Father has turned over to God the Son all judgment. Jesus says that. All judgment has been turned over to me. Why is that? Father can't be a peer judge. Only God the Son can be a peer judge. Only God the Son can blow away all the smoke. He can blow away all the excuses. And we can't come to him and say this and that and so on. He says, I walked in your life. I walked on the planet Earth. I faced the temptations of Satan just like you faced it. And we're going to also deal with the excuse that a lot of people, well, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have flesh. We'll get to that in the life of Christ. That's called the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. And that was a doctrine in the church. See, the church thought about these things. We guys in the 20th century aren't the first Joes down the street to think about these things. Church already thought about these, already gave an answer to it, already studied the scriptures. Nothing new here. All we have to do is get smart and read and listen to what the Holy Spirit has taught the saints that have gone before us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the scriptures and for the Holy Spirit that teaches us about our faith and gives it content because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And if we don't get the Word of God, then we can't have faith. Our faith can only be as strong as the content and object of our faith. So tonight we ask that you would strengthen our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit, illuminating the content of your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Tonight's uh, lesson might have stimulated some thinking about different issues. Um, now's the time to discuss or raise questions. I guess, Debbie, you want to lead off? <laughs> if it wasn't for Debbie, we wouldn't have a Q&A. You know yeah. I've studied this before. I've been told that every woman, with, beginning with Eve, that she might be the mother of the Messiah, every Jewish woman, is that... 
the question uh, Okay, the question Gail asked was, um, is it true that every Jewish woman hoped that she would be the mother of the Messiah? I'm not sure. I, I just really haven't asked. Um, I haven't seen Arnold Fruchtenbaum in years, so I, I, I would trust his judgment. Um, I've just never asked. A Jew, it would take a Jewish Hebrew Christian for that insight. Oh, I think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, the question is, what was Eve thinking? And the commentators generally hold that that expression that Eve uses when she names Cain is an unusual expression. And she apparently uh, believes that something special is happening there. And that's in line with the fact that all prophecy has built-in time expansion to it so that when it's given, it always seems like it's imminent. And then God unfolds. It's like an accordion. You know, he, he unfolds it and he unfolds it. Remember the 70 years? The exile is only supposed to be 70 years. And you get to the, ex, the end of the exile. And what does Daniel do? He prays, thinking that, oh, 70 years. That's what it says in Jeremiah. So it's 70 years are up. I confess the sins of the nation. The whole nation of Israel should come back to the land. And he starts praying the prayer. And what happens? The angel comes and says, oh... Daniel, actually, it's going to be 70 sevens. And so, now all of a sudden, extra time. It's true, in 70 years, literally, part of the nation will come back to the land. So, the prophecy is is valid, but there's an extra dimension built into it. And that happens again and again in the Bible. So, that's not unusual that Eve would accept that. Any other um, issues on the... Uh, maybe on the virgin birth. Have any of you? Yes. I was um, just saying, I remember growing up and looking at like Tarzan movies and things like that when we saw pagan religion. Saw so what? Pagan religion? Mm-hmm. That, that's why the, the idea that you've brought up that uh, you see the virgin themes, usually either she's sacrificed or she's worshipped. It's really amazing, the polarity. Um, but the, virgin, the worship of the virgin goes back to even Babylon. Uh, there's a man in the 19th century, uh, Hislop, that wrote the two Babylons, the story of the two Babylons. And he tra- he's got evidence after evidence after evidence complete with archaeological sources where you can see it, where this, there was a, the, the whole pagan cult surrounded the worship of the virgin and her child. The virgin and her child. And uh, so where did this come from? In fact, one of the constellations is Virgo. And where did that come from? So it's clear that in the world, and what is the pagan world really, if we're going to think biblically and not just anthropologically, but if we think biblically when we deal with anthropology instead of just thinking Darwinianly, um, pagan society is a corrupted survival of Noah. Right? Everybody got off the boat. So all these religions out there must be taking the truths that were passed to them originally through Noah and his son, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their sons. I mean, after all, keep in mind that Noah lived for centuries after the flood. 
So he had a long time to train his sons and his daughter-in-law on all this content of Genesis 1 to 10. So they, those people know. It's not a case of people didn't hear. It's a case where that is a satanic counterfeit distortion of the virgin theme in prophecy. And far from being a noble virgin, I mean by noble I mean not of character, but noble in the sense of the upper class virgin that was worshipped, here you have a lowly Jewish teenager. See, it's the fact that God in runs even that. His virgin isn't some queen. His virgin is just a simple, ordinary Jewish girl in the, in the village. That's the miracle, see? And that's how our God works. But it, she is a virgin. And she's a virgin like no pagan religion ever could have conceived because all of their perversions in the end were fake. So it's, a, it's one of those cases where it does us... It's good that you brought that up, Bonnie, because the, the problem we have in our education is we're brought up to think in the wrong frame of reference. Then we get in trouble because we try to fit the Bible into this wrong frame of reference. And the wrong frame of reference is that we forget about Noah, we forget about the lineage of the pagan peoples back to Noah, we keep thinking of them as just these people groups that are all scattered hither and yon, and there's something in the psyche of humanity, because we have to explain why does the virgin birth occur in this people group, that people group, some other people group. So, uh, discarding Noah, keeping him out of the issue, keeping the Bible out of the issue, we've got to come up with an alternate explanation. So, the alternate explanation is there is some deep psychic thing in the gender war. And the female gender has this power over the men. Um, and... Uh, it is related to this virgin thing. It's some screwy arrangement, like some, some big psychological thing. Then once you accept that as the explanation for the rise of this in all the pagan societies, then what happens when it appears in the New Testament? It's all explained away. So you can't let yourself become snookered into this frame of reference. And that's why it's so important, I say over and over again, why we had to come from Genesis through the flood so the Old Testament history, up to Jesus, because now it's going to pay off. Now we can look at Jesus' virgin birth and we can see, here's why. There were reasons why it happens. So the liberal, and I remember, I was not, not a Christian growing up, and I can remember going to church and hearing this priest uh, tell that basically uh, that was a story. That was a good religious story. It was enabling well, I mean, come on, I mean, Jack and the Beanstalk might be enabling, but we're talking validity, truth here. So, even as a non-Christian, I can remember thinking to myself, well, fella, what are you employed to do around here? You know, I might as well go home and read a book review and come to church. I mean, what, what have you got to offer me if you're just telling me that this book is a big storybook? Well, hey, i got other things to do on Sunday morning. I don't have to come in here. So... So that, it's very, very important to see the framework and how it leads up. And you can now see why the Lord took so many centuries before Jesus came on the scene. I mean, this all had to be digested. Um, men had to appreciate why the Messiah had to come as a perfect king. They first had to see David and his failings. They had to see Solomon and his failings. They had to see the collapse of the monarchy to realize that uh, this, you know, we need leadership, 
But gosh, you know, the human flesh is flesh. And we keep getting disappointed. And so that's what, why under the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament you have that transfer. Psalm 2 is a good case, the transfer. Psalm 110, the transfer. The transfer is from David and the house of David to the ideal Messiah that they never could be. But, but the experience of David was necessary to make people appreciate what would be required in the Messiah. If the Messiah came in Joshua's day, there was no experience of the monarchy to understand why he'd have to be king. Jesus is said to be king of kings and lord of lords. That doesn't make sense if you haven't had an experience with kings and lords. See? That's why I think the second advent is close because our generation and the generation before us and our parents' generation, uh, if you think about it, we are getting globally conscious. Um, for the first time, I mean, things that happen in one place on earth immediately. Uh, it, you know, you're, you're having people in Africa respond to something in Europe. You're having, uh, you know, Wade here that sat in the second row today. He's a commodities trader. And he works to protect the assets of an international company. And uh, every day, the, the poor guy's sitting here on the currency exchanges trying to protect the American dollars of his company against the yen and the douche mark, and now the euro, and, uh, because it's all instantaneous. You go to your computer and 8 o'clock in the morning, there's a big report on what Globex, what, what was going on all night around the other side of the world. So we've got this glo globalness that we never had before. So it makes sense that, that this itself is a preparation. So when Christ comes, he sets up this millennial kingdom, it will be a global world government. And it will be appreciated. I mean, a person in the Middle Ages couldn't appreciate Jesus as a global ruler because they didn't even know what the globe was. So I think it's all just step by step, God taking his time, doing it in his usual careful way. So every step is going to be in place. Anybody ever think about, I mean, you can speculate this, and there's no text in Scripture, but can you, you imagine um, the years between the birth of Jesus and the time he started his ministry? wonder what, what it was like in the family. And you know what's interesting about his family? Because we have some of his brothers writing, his half-brothers, writing in the New Testament. James and Jude. But it's interesting that there's not a record of any of his brothers or sisters believing on him. And I think that's rather remarkable. Because if you, you can get yourself under a guilt trip by reading some, some Christian devotional. I'm not saying Christian devotional literature is wrong. A lot of it is very good. But... You can get under a guilt trip if you're a parent and your kids go astray and you think, oh man, what did I do wrong? And you live under that for years. What if I had just said something different, if I'd just been different or done this, and, and you blame yourself for everything your kids do. Or reverse it. Um, you, you, you feel embarrassed or ashamed by your family or something. Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't lead one of his brothers or sisters to himself. Does that mean he didn't live the Christ-like life? No, something to think about. And he didn't get a big guilt complex. The gospels, his, the gospels say that his brothers and sisters laughed at him. Now, how do you put that one on? I mean, couldn't they see, living with this guy, there was a difference? Maybe they did, and that repulsed them. Maybe the story of his birth 
repulse them. Later on, you'll see the next section of my notes, I'm going to deal with what the Jews said about Mary. Well, you see this. The stories that were passed around in, in Jewish society about Miriam. Oh. So, they, they, so she had to live under this. I mean, this was big time news. Uh, when this virgin birth thing in, in Mary. I mean, it is, that liberals can say that that claim was late in church history, but it's a very funny thing. Why is it that we have contemporary Jewish that call Jesus the bastard? Say, why is that going around early? Well, clearly it's a reaction to something. What was it? The Jews even have a story that Mary shacked up with a Roman soldier. That's how she produced Jesus. And so all these are early stories. Um that went on and to me they're great to, to know that tools because you can, you can if you get a few of these stories you know somebody says ah the virgin birth oh yeah that's interesting why was the Jesus called a bastard then by the, his contemporaries oh well I never read that yeah that's your problem no Elizabeth that Elliot posed an interesting she was talking about Mary and uh, she was saying do you think the angel Gabriel appeared to anyone else before Mary and they said no uh you know, because think of Mary now. Yeah. She's engaged, and of course, she oh, yeah. wanted to be married to Joseph. And when she said yes to the Lord, oh, yeah. there was the chance that she would lose Joseph. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a scary acceptance. Absolutely. And I had never thought of it that way. Francis Schaeffer does that. Now, Gail just mentioned, um, Elizabeth Elliot mentioning, think of what a decision, you know, the New, the New Testament brushes it over in a verse. If you read the text, you, the angel, you know, is talking to her here, you know, a big cosmic event. And, you know, the text, what does the text say? Mary says, well, be it unto me, according to your handmaiden. And it's just so kind of casual that you get the idea, no big deal. Yeah, you want to, you know, I'll be the virgin mother, no problem. Well, it's, Elizabeth L. is absolutely right. Can you imagine being a teenage girl in a monotheistic very religious, very strict society. Here you are, you're in love with this guy, great guy, and, and your life is with us, because babes, if you have a problem and you, you get labeled as somebody that's offbeat here, you better go to another country, because you're not going to be around that village long. So here she is, and she's got to inherit a scandal. A major scandal that will probably blow her whole love relationship with this guy that she loves. And she does that for the Lord. So that's, a, that's true. We haven't got time to get into that text, but that's one of those neat texts that you really do want to read and try to empathize and get in her head and you realize what a spiritually mature woman this Miriam was. She was only a, a young teenager probably at the time, and yet she shows such spiritual vitality and strength and poise. Tremendous. Good point, Gail. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, that's a, it's a hard... T uh, we, we have to come up with an answer to those two genealogies, and I think um, the Christian scholars over the centuries are right, and I think this is the way of handling Matthew's juxtaposition of the genealogy ahead of the virgin birth. 
that and and to, and I think it's not it's not some fantastic speculation when you think about Matthew's background. Matthew is the guy who, by the way, if you read him carefully in his Gospels, he's always the one that's talking about the parties Jesus had and who he associated with. See, think about it. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a guy who was out in the street. He could evaluate people. I mean, he had to. He had to tell whether people were liars or not because he had to you know, find out whether they were putting them on or what he was collecting taxes. And if he didn't bring in the dough, he was fired or worse. So he had an astute sense of people in the street. And this is the guy, with that in mind, thinking who Matthew is. Read the Gospel again. And read what he talks about when, he, when Jesus gets in these parties with the publicans and sinners and, you know, and, and everybody's making fun of him. And Matthew, like, he enjoys that. He likes that. He thinks that's cool. Well, our time is up, so um, we'll meet next week.